Hello and welcome to the February 2020 episode of the History Twins podcast. Today we are interviewing Professor Glenn David Cox of the Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala City. Professor Cox has been the director of the Program of American Studies at UFM and has extensively studied Latin American history and comparative politics. Professor Cox, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Let's begin with the Spanish conquest of Guatemala. Could you describe the state of Guatemala at the time of the Spanish arrival in 1524? Well, it's a uh, post-classic period in historical and archaeological times. What that means is essentially that the more unified classic Maya lowland state of the first millennium had degenerated for reasons that are still controversial. Some say weather, some say warfare. But... Maya civilization has devolved into a number of chiefdoms called casicazgos in, in Spanish, and these chiefdoms uh, warred among themselves much as the ancient Greek city-states did. So that was a fertile environment for the Spaniards who were able to make allies of some Indians and then use them to war against other Indians, and the uh, conquest proceeded in that way, until the uh, culminating point, the Cachiquel Wars, uh, in the mid-1520s, Pedro de Alvarado established uh, Spanish hegemony uh, in the Guatemalan highlands. Could you describe Hernán Cortés's subjugation of the native peoples? What important native holdouts remained following the occupation? Well, the uh, Spanish subjugation, and uh, by extension, Hernán uh, Cortés, used a model that had been uh, tried out for long centuries in the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, which involved reducciones, uh, reductions, literally would be the translation, of concentrating people into uh, communities uh, after they had been militarily defeated. That's what I consider to be subjugation. Subjugation is then the uh, forced location and relocation of people uh, throughout southern Mexico, central Mexico. And uh, we should be clear that Cortes really had nothing to do with the way uh, this process went forward in Guatemala. Guatemala's uh, subjugation was carried out by Pedro Alvarado, who of course is an extension of Hernán Cortés's invading army of 1519. How did so many indigenous tribes in Guatemala survive the Spanish conquest and the Colombian exchange, remaining a significant percentage of the population to this day? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think most anthropologists, archaeologists, historians uh, attribute the survival of native populations in southern Mexico, in the Guatemalan highlands, in Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia, where these same Indian, uh, pre-Columbian Indian groups uh, survived in great numbers, attribute this to relative isolation and ability to avoid the catastrophic consequences of plague, different diseases that made the rounds uh, over the uh, decades. Uh, and by, oh, the end of the century, uh, most historians, demographers, claim that about 90% of the native population that had been uh, in the Americas uh, 
had been decimated, had been eliminated, but they survived because of uh, isolation and because, I think, of uh, altitude. Indians that lived above a certain altitude could avoid the ravages of the uh, microorganisms that transmitted these plagues, uh, which were unavoidable in lower elevations and especially in the tropics. So you find most of the Indians today uh, in Latin America concentrated in highland areas, and that's where the demographic, the demographic curve began to reassert the uh, native population in the 1800s. The low point, of course, was the uh, 17th century, and then in the 18th century, uh, Indian tribes in these countries I mentioned made a comeback. And by that point, they had already acquired sufficiently those diseases that they were safe, or...? Well, I'm not trained as an immunologist. Um, I would uh, only speculate that that's probably true. Uh, the development of um, an immune system over generations then uh, enabled them to uh, make the comeback that they did demographically. How did the Spanish crown administer Guatemala during its period as a colony from 1548 to 1821? And when did the divides between neighboring Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and Belize take shape? Well, that's a rather uh, ambitious question with a lot of variables that uh, need to be unpacked. Uh, the, the, the administration of uh, American lands is again an extension of new state institutions developed in the 15th and 16th century and these institutions essentially sought to avoid the replication of a feudal kind of arrangement, uh, administrative arrangement as had existed in Spain and the rest of Europe. So I think the number one policy decision and implementation had to do with the creation of administrative units that were responsible directly to the Spanish crown. And the marginalization, if not total avoidance, of the creation of feudal kinds of domains. Uh, now, that's not to say that seigneurials, uh, what are called seigneurial or in uh, in English, usually called manorial from the manor kinds of arrangements. It's not to say that those kinds of arrangements didn't exist, but it's important to distinguish between feudal, in feudal institutions and manorial institutions. Feudal institutions are, are political, administrative, uh, juridical, and they had existed in the Middle Ages in Europe, and they were avoided here in, in the New World. So you have an administrative structure which is uh, both top-heavy, run from the top down, but at the same time collegial. You have institutions like the Audiencia, which is uh, essentially a court, but we are in those times when great distinctions between executive, legislative, and judicial functions, uh, which are made in the modern republican system, separate powers, didn't really exist. So you had you had different figures, institutions of authority that overlapped in their decision making. You had the ability to appeal to different authorities 
even in in the last instance an appeal straight to the uh, the king's court or the king himself in Spain. Uh, it's a very complicated, uh, very sophisticated, and to uh, again a controversial judgment. But uh, to the extent that we're we're judging uh, the effectiveness of institutional authorities, uh, they were very effective in impeding the transference of feudalism to the New World from Spanish tradition. The high points of administrative uh, structure, uh, administrative ability, administrative effectiveness, occurred in two different waves. The, the first one from the mid-16th century to about uh, the mid-17th century. That would be 1550 to, to 1650. In the 17th century and by the mid-17th century, 1650, the great Spanish overseas empire had entered a phase of decline. Uh, basically, the uh, not the end, but the collapse of the ability to export great quantities of silver from the New World back to back to Spain. And when the silver shipments declined, when the, uh, when the uh, receipts uh, declined, declined, the decline also occurred among administrative uh, effectiveness. Uh, officers, offices were, were increasingly bought and sold, uh, oversight, uh, of these institutions I mentioned before became more venal, more corrupt. Uh, administration became uh, uh, something of uh, an extension of personal interests uh, and family uh, relationships. The change in the family monarchy of Spain in 1700, when the Habsburgs uh, were eclipsed and in the War of the Spanish Succession, the Bourbons were installed or installed themselves in Spain. Uh, you have new initiatives coming from the ideas of the modern state in France, which begin to invade uh, the Spanish uh, bureaucracy, the Spanish power structure. It's not a change that happens overnight. It takes several decades to build itself up into a going concern, but you have from the 1740s, 1750s, and especially after the Seven Years' War, which ends in the Treaty of Paris in 1763, you have a, a, a literal bourbon onslaught on administrative efficiency. Uh, Accompanying that is also a loosening of uh, top-down control of commercial arrangements, uh, the idea being that more freely uh, organized commercial interaction with the New World will produce greater, greater receipts, greater uh, tax revenue, uh, greater reward for imperial Spain, and, and that bet turned out to be true. And along with that, there was this second wave of administrative uh, initiative, the Bourbon reforms, they're called. These are the times when uh, the 
government tries to make local economic exchange more efficient, and one of the ways this was done was uh, through the creation of the intendencias, uh, las intendencias, we say in Spanish. And um, in the 1780s, legislation was passed, and the resources, both human and material, were provided to create a new political and economic structure uh, called the intendencies, the intendencies uh, in English, I guess is the word. And many of them were created, uh, more than 20 of them were created in Mexico, and these same units continued to be defined from what is now the border area between southern Mexico and Guatemala. Chiapas is the, uh, is the state that was created as an intendancy. Uh, then you have Guatemala created as an intendancy. You have El Salvador, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, Costa Rica being the last of all of these different intendencias. Uh, created in the 1780s, and those political units, political economic units they are actually, are the forerunners then of the states that emerge in Central America after 1821, who try to uh, be a union, a confederation at first, and then in the late 1830s become individual republics, each one of these intendencias. Moving on to the end of the colonial period, could you describe how Guatemala obtained its independence from Spain in 1821? Well, that's also an interesting uh, topic. Uh, I see independence as essentially uh, a conservative movement, uh, even if there are liberal uh, Spanish uh, uh, trends identifiable, but in the long run, it is the conservative impulse which dominates the independence process. And this impulse, I think, is, is best illustrated by the decision of Guatemalan elites in 1821 to accept the, the plan of a Mexican, or actually a royal general, most people don't understand that uh, Mexico is not independent from Spain until 1821, just like the rest of the Central American republics, although they celebrate their independence based on uh, the Hidalgo revolt of 1810. But uh, Mexico continues to have uh, a uh, viceroy and a royal army uh, presence and brigadier generals that are part of that structure all the way up to 1821, and one of those generals, Agustin Iturbide, produces the document which enough military commanders uh, sign on to around Mexico to uh, establish three guarantees. Uh, and at that point, Iturbide's army became known as the Army of the Three Guarantees. And each guarantee alludes to one component of the independence uh, idea. Uh, religion, union, and independence were the three components. 
Religion, of course, meant that the Catholic Church as an institution and as a human presence, a corporative presence, would maintain its privileges, its own uh, justice uh, system, its fueros, as they were called in, in Spanish. Uh, they would be the only religion recognized uh, as legal in the country emerging. Uh, there was essentially a sop to the idea of separation of church and state. There was no longer the intimate relation of church and state as has existed in, in colonial times and in Spain before the uh, constitution of Cádiz. But essentially it gave the Catholic Church a monopoly over religion. The second component uh, union is the most misunderstood component. Most people think that union referred to the union of the Central American countries that were emerging, but no, it referred to the union of interests between Creoles, uh, Criollos, and Peninsulares, Spanish uh, uh, natives. And it's important to understand that many Spanish natives uh, lived, worked, benefited uh, from the colonial system and were part of the population, for the most part in those central core area countries like Mexico, the, the center of Guatemala, uh, the center of Colombia, Peru, Chile, Argentina, uh, although the uh, peninsula, the, the native Spanish were, were pretty well run off by the Argentines in 1810. But Spanish natives survived as part of the political, military, and especially economic structure and infrastructure that existed in 1821. And the question was, what was going to happen to them? And Iturbide's plan, the Plan de Iguala, uh, issued in... 1820 and finally agreed to in 1821 produced an amalgamation. It produced the literal integration of Spanish interests, military, political, uh, well less political but economic, by which uh, those interests established especially in commerce uh, would continue to have the benefit of their colonial arrangements and the Creoles would be integrated into this uh, system and allowed to compete or exist on the same civil level as, as the Spaniards. In the military dimension, the, the Spanish officials were integrated into the new armies that, that formed and the Spanish bureaucracy and all of the political appointments literally retired and went back to Spain or went to Cuba, many of them, because Cuba continued to be part of the Spanish Empire. So independence then is produced with the idea of continuity, with the uh, continuation of even the idea of monarchy. The principal bottom line in Iturbide's Plan de Iguala is that Mexico and Guatemala as part of Mexico will continue to function as a monarchy. The plan called for the importation of a European monarch, preferably someone from the Bourbon branch uh, of royalty, and if not, 
then a monarch would be sought among other branches of European royalty. This, of course, didn't work out. There was no European royalty, let alone Bourbon royalty, willing to, uh, willing to take on this task. The Spanish government in Madrid, uh, when it came to voting in favor or against Iturbide's plan, voted against it. And so Spain literally didn't recognize the process that had produced the 1821 independence. The solution then was for the Mexican Congress to establish a monarch itself, and they gave the monarchy to the general who made the plan, Iturbide, and so he became Iturbide I. His monarchy lasted almost a year, a little more, began to fall apart pretty quickly. Uh, a Mexican army was sent to Guatemala to align the Guatemalans, uh, who had uh, nevertheless agreed, the, el the elites who signed the uh, Declaration of Independence in, in 1521 agreed. But when the Mexican army overthrew Iturbide, the Mexican army in Guatemala retired and then left uh, Central America and Guatemala in the hands of those political forces, which produced a Republican constitution in 1824 and a confederation in which you had local governors of different states and a national federal president based in, at first, Guatemala and then El Salvador. And this produced friction between liberals and, uh, and uh, conservatives. Uh, uh, when a conservative governor in one of the states uh, came up against the ideas of the uh, federal uh, president, who was usually a liberal, this naturally produced animosities, conflicts, and eventually uh, civil war. What factors led to the Central American Civil War? Well, the most fundamental thing is uh, the ideas that liberals uh, maintained about modernizing, about progress, about economic reform, about... Uh, uh, bringing in new kinds of uh, legislative and uh, uh, judicial uh, apparatus for uh, deciding questions of law and uh, questions of economy. You have, as I was saying, a conservative impulse that informs the independence process. You have essentially a mass population which continues to be monarchist, continues to be uh, uh, patrimonial, uh, continues to see in a king figure, a father figure, uh, government as a provider uh, rather than a uh, population that wants to participate in politics. Liberals uh, essentially are seduced by European ideas of free trade and uh, loosening the, uh, the privileges, the structure that provides privileges for trade, which have been monopolized by conservatives. And so you have all of the, all of the, uh, the mixture and the trimmings for uh, conflict between differing interests not just in a material sense, but in 
and in a sense of uh, cultural values and priorities and morals and uh, things like that. So liberalism is not something that uh, could count with the mass uh, identification. It didn't have the support among the populations. The church continued to be essentially a conservative factor. Uh, the way the church wanted things to go was the way most people uh, in the countryside uh, uh, went, and so you have you have the you have the the reserve army of uh, people disposed to fight for a conservative cause, and less so for the liberal cause, who they need the money to to have an army and to build it up and. In the long run, they just didn't count with the numbers. And uh, so this went back and forth for a number of uh, years. You have, uh, you have also within Guatemala a conflict between a conservative Guatemala city and a liberal uh, Quetzaltenango uh, in the part of the country which is called Los Altos. It gets to a point where Los Altos in the 1830s even succeeds and tries to establish itself as a separate country, uh, which it was briefly uh, until it was forcibly retained and returned to Guatemala as a result of the conservative triumph of uh, Rafael Carrera in 1838-39, which is the point of the breakdown of, uh, of the Confederation, the defeat of Morazan in... Uh, Costa Rica and his uh, execution there by a firing squad essentially eliminates the the forces of federation and liberalism and allows a conservative wave to sweep over Central America led by Rafael Carrera who's the, the true founder of the Guatemalan Republic. What policies did Carrera implement to augment his control and cement his popularity? He essentially restored colonial institutions. He brought back what was called the Corregidor, who was uh, an official of the state who oversaw in Spanish areas the, uh, the, the peace, the organization, uh, the uh, stability of those areas, and the Corregidor de Indios, who uh, did the same thing for Indian uh, populations. Uh, he brought back uh, the Consulado, which is a corporatist body that oversees commercial relations and maintains uh, a mercantile uh, model of, uh, of exchange. Uh, he brought back the power of the Colegio de Abogados, which continues to be a strong institution in Guatemala to this day, uh, giving... Spanish legalism then, its uh, hold over the political process, uh, one of the reasons that Guatemala has such trouble uh, achieving a, an effective political process is that the bias of the system allows for lawyers to administer the offices of the state, uh, and that in turn allows for much corruption and uh, uh, classic uh, 
pre-modern patrimonial forms of, uh, of organization and decision-making and, and resource distribution. Uh, he brought back uh, the, the ability of the Indian communities to essentially operate isolated from the Spanish world, eliminated the Indian head tax, which the liberals had put on them, which of course was one of the more popular measures. Uh, he reorganized the army. He put a, essentially mestizo and even Indian uh, officials into the army power structure and by that was able to at least intimidate, if not keep white Guatemala in line with uh, uh, his popular uh, ideas. So uh, what he essentially did was form an alliance with the church, tolerate the conservatives, allow them to continue to, to produce, nevertheless, uh, in the tradition of uh, colonial government and colonial economics. Would it be fair to say that Carrera's presidency was the first period of genuine stability that Guatemala had enjoyed since the independence? You want a short answer? Yes. Uh, Although you shouldn't characterize uh, Carrera's presidency as one long term. It wasn't. It wasn't a classic dictatorship. It was uh, a caudillo. Uh, boss politician kind of political structure. There were times when he retired from government, went back to his uh, heartland in the eastern mountains of Guatemala around Asuncion Mita, uh, emerged from that heartland when it was necessary to have a show of force. His presence uh, uh, usually put things back in line. Other people were, were briefly president during this period, but Yes, his presence established a stability that Guatemala had not known since colonial times. But it sounds like it was quite similar, so the period was a lot of bloodshed to go back to a Spanish system. Well, Guatemala is not unusual in that sense. Uh, the independence process itself should be understood as the invasion of European uh, Enlightenment kinds of ideas that ultimately were rejected by the masses, by the conservative uh, hierarchies, by the Catholic Church. And so liberalism essentially lost. Liberalism was not uh, successful in taking uh, the Spanish-American colonies to an independence of progress uh, and development. Uh, all of the countries in Latin America in the 1830s experienced what political scientists who study revolutions call thermidor, something that refers to the French Revolution and that moment when Robespierre lost his political following and fell from power. And at that point, a more conservative force reestablished itself in the French Revolution. And that's what happened in uh, Guatemala in the 1830s. Guatemala was one of the last countries to, to experience this transition. But you see the same transition going on from Argentina in the extreme south, uh, Chile up through uh, the Andean countries, Mexico itself 
in 1830 sees the uh, the execution of uh, Vicente Guerrero, who's the great champion of the Mexican people and the uh, liberal presence in the revolution, and at that point, conservative uh, politics and uh, generalship, military sense, take over the country for the next 20, 25 years. Guatemala is only following a pattern similar to what's going on in Latin America in general. Moving along to the 20th century, could you give a brief summary of Manuel Estrada Cabrera's regime? Well, that's an interesting, an interesting question, a brief summary. Uh, you know, I see uh, Manuel Estrada Cabrera as essentially the culminating, the culminating point of liberalism's second failure. Liberalism in Latin America comes back to power in the 1870s, and that happened in Guatemala with the uh, Rufino Barrios uh, liberal revolution of 1871. By the time we get to Estrada Cabrera in, in 1898, the liberal impulse that, that Barrios has brought has seeded uh, its... its uh, its its force as a defining political philosophy to French positivism. This is the era, the last 20, 25 years of the 19th century, when French positivism invades uh, uh, the intellectual environment of Latin America. And politicians who govern from the end of the century are pretty much influenced by by that philosophical uh, understanding and what that understanding uh, cherished most of all in terms of political values was order, was progress. Order and progress are the, uh, the, the, the two words that essentially define uh, Estrada Cabrera as well as Porfirio Diaz in Mexico, uh, as well as Rafael Núñez in, in Colombia, for example, and you could go right down the list. Uh, this French positivism and French influence in general uh, brought an appreciation for institutional development, at least in terms of the modernization of the military, in terms of the modernization of uh, juridical and legislative uh, uh, forces. So you have in Estrada Cabrera a dictator who rules alongside of parliamentary institutions and a political party who rubber stamp uh, his particular interests in running the country. And Estrada Cabrera, who is or who considers himself, I should say, uh, an intellectual, uh, someone who is versed in European civilization and someone who is immersed in this positivist philosophy. And it is this positivism that, that places progress at the very top of priorities in government and progress means turning the country over to those economic forces that will produce 
uh, development, or at least the outward trappings of development. Uh, so this is, uh, again, true for Guatemala as it is for the rest of Latin America, and it is this time that companies like the uh, United Fruit Company established their foothold. Uh, they had begun in, uh, in Colombia on the north coast, moved to Costa Rica, and then ended up in Guatemala. They have, they have uh, these different enclave interests in different countries, uh, and they are an efficient producer of wealth in the sense of uh, the cultivation of banana plantations. Uh, and Estrada Cabrera, like every other positivist authoritarian liberal of the late 19th and earliest 20th century, allows uh, contracts and uh, privileges to be assigned to those institutions, uh, essentially international economic uh, actors that are able to produce wealth for themselves and for the country. Uh, uh, in the uh, list of, of questions that you that you presented me uh, uh, prior to this interview, I, I noticed one that that spoke about the United Fruit Company and whether it did any good. And so you know, the United Fruit Company, uh, because it gains notoriety as uh, a privileged entity, and it began under a liberal dictatorship by uh, Estrada Carrera, can only be seen in the politically correct uh, liberal North American mind as an evil institution when in reality the United Fruit Company did a whole lot of good uh, for Guatemala in terms of eliminating plagues and certain diseases and creating infrastructure and providing jobs and the jobs they provided were on plantations where the families of the workers were able to access uh, uh, medical uh, facilities and uh, educational facilities. Uh, I've known people still do who grew up on a United Fruit Plantation back in the early uh, 1950s and always point out these positive things. Uh, the United Fruit Company then was caught up in the ideological wars of the late 20th century uh, and somehow becomes the evil force behind the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in 1954. This is all narrative that serves a political agenda on the left and really should be considered with suspect, by, uh, with suspects, yes, and, and uh, there are a number of uh, good books written about the United Fruit Company and, and the good that they did. The other part of that equation is that there is definitely a deficit in the supply of entrepreneurial, modern entrepreneurial, risk-oriented uh, economic philosophy among Guatemalan elites, which exists till this day. And so entrepreneurial uh, activity in, in a lot of Latin America in the early 20th century relied on not just North American actors, but uh, European ones as well, who had the ability to create wealth uh, for themselves and for the countries. And unfortunately, the structures of the countries were top-heavy and uh, very elitist. 
but you can't blame the international entrepreneurial skill for the environment in which they find themselves. Uh, if Guatemalan and Latin American elites had had more of an entrepreneurial uh, philosophy, a modern entrepreneurial philosophy about economic development, uh, maybe these countries wouldn't have gotten into the situations that they did. But that's all water under the bridge now, and I think should be uh, looked at objectively uh, and not with uh, distorted political agendas. Do you believe that Jacobo Arbenz was in fact a crypto-communist? I don't. Uh, I believe that uh, Jacobo Arbenz was a military officer who read Soviet army manuals when uh, he was uh, part of the military structure during World War II at a time when the Soviet uh, army and uh, country as a whole was an ally of the United States and of Western Europe and the principal contributing factor to the uh, defeat of Nazi Germany in Europe. Uh, that said, uh, the idea that this army was able to efficiently roll back the mightiest military machine that uh, 20th century Europe had seen, the uh, Nazi uh, military, I think fascinated Arbenz as well as other military officers, not just in Guatemala, but around the region. After uh, that experience, uh, he was part of a popular revolution in 1944 in Guatemala and became in the new government, the Minister of Defense. Uh, in that position, he had a natural rivalry with another officer uh, who was uh, an opponent and more closely associated with traditional interests in the country. Uh, Arbenz had made a pact with the president elected in 1840, in 1944, uh, Juan José Arevalo, and uh, this other military officer who was the general in charge of the army, Arana. And that pact stated that in 1951, Arbenz would run for the presidency, and then in 1957, Arana would run for the presidency. So you have this traditional idea of military involvement in Guatemalan politics, which is accepted by Arbenz and by Arana. The assassination of Arana in, eight, in 1949 then put an end to, uh, to that pact, and the people who supported Arana never got over the fact that Arbenz was somehow responsible for, for that assassination. This environment of very turbulent politics and uh, uh, messy political arrangements uh, created an atmosphere of distrust at a time when the Cold War was taking off in the United States. Uh, 1849, the formation of NATO. Uh, 18 1949, I seem to be stuck in the, 18th, in the 19th century. 1949, the, the creation of uh, NATO. 1949, the acquisition by the Soviet Union of the atomic bomb. 
1949, the beginning of the Korean War, which is, of course, the first great test between what are now two opposing forces who had been allies during World War II. This, of course, generates the atmosphere of uh, Joe McCarthy uh, in the United States, uh, the atmosphere of the House Committee on American Activities, Investigations, uh, the emergence then of uh, what are accusations which uh, can only be compared to the way the Inquisition worked back in the 17th century. Uh, and this kind of accusatorial environment ultimately invades Guatemala and establishes its own brand of McCarthyism right here uh, in Guatemala, which the supporters of Arana uh, glommed onto and used effectively to create the impression that Arbenz was somehow compromised by international communism. Uh, that he may have had inclinations of a nationalist uh, uh, variety and that his wife was somehow associated with, with communists in El Salvador and that, uh, that he was uh, in the process of acquiring arms uh, from an Eastern Bloc nation in Czechoslovakia and, of course, that he was... Uh, uh, the, the sponsor of an agrarian reform program, which was based on the Mexican model, which was a disaster, uh, that he went to the Communist Party, recently legalized, uh, as an ally in the legislative process to move his agrarian reform through Congress, is all true. Uh, but... You have to also read the cable traffic that the U.S. Embassy is sending out. The political, uh, the political analysts of the embassy uh, essentially are saying that, well, Arbenz is using the Communist Party because most of the other political parties are corrupt. The other political parties need to be bought off with money in order, in order to support the legislation. In other words, the, 1840, the 1944 Constitution that produced this Congress essentially written by lawyers seeking to reestablish the patrimonial political relationships of Guatemala are successful in creating political, political parties that are essentially structures designed to assault the national treasury. And Arbenz is looking for a, uh, uh, a political party that is interested in reform. Arbenz is essentially following the World Bank program for the restructuring and modernization of Guatemalan institutions. Uh, the World Bank program is not a communist uh, manifesto. Uh, when Arbenz falls and is replaced ultimately by a conservative Guatemalan general, Castillo Armas, that same Castillo Armas produces an agrarian reform program called the Plan of Tegucigalpa, in 1956, which puts him also in a very sticky situation with the political coalition on the right, which has sustained his rise to power. This is a very complicated issue. It needs to be researched more. It needs to be read about in a wide perspective uh, 
uh, and especially we need to pay more closer attention to the cable traffic and the analysis of the, the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City, which has the most objective reporting on what Arbenz uh, is trying to do at this point. Arbenz himself is not above using his office to uh, enrich himself, and this is something that's also pointed out by uh, his opponents. Uh, so you have Arbenz involved in commercial dealings with cotton on the south coast, uh, probably as an escape plan, something that uh, would allow him to survive financially in case uh, his government should fall. Arbenz is well aware that the opposition to his uh, place in power is opposed uh, increasingly by army officers and the military in general, and it is the pact between Guatemalans who are in Honduras, led by Castillo Armas, and Guatemalan military officers in 1954 that essentially produces uh, a stalemate uh, with Arbenz and a decision not to defend the invading army, or not to, not to defend against the invasion of the Castillo Armas forces. So that when they invade the country um, in early uh, 1954, and as that invasion becomes sustainable uh, by June, uh, you have Arbenz in the presidency where most of the institutions and people have abandoned him. Uh, nobody arises to defend Jacobo Arbenz and his government. He is literally without support. Uh, the efforts to bring people into the city from the countryside and, and create a popular army to defend the revolution is, is a total failure. Nobody is defending Arbenz. So that in the end, Guatemala returns to its natural conservative mold, uh, as it did back in the times of Rafael Carrera. Uh, and you have then the beginnings of what will be a long conflict uh, that emerges in the 1960s. So moving on to that long conflict, what do you think started the Guatemalan Civil War? The different factions uh, within the Guatemalan military were ultimately unable to reconcile the fact that the army didn't fulfill its constitutional duty to defend the country in 1954. And so you have, between 1954 and 1960, different manifestations of this inconformity, of, of this, of this uh, uneasiness uh, with how the Guatemalan military had responded constitutionally in a time of crisis. So you have a faction of the military that finally uh, addresses the issue with... Uh, a military movement in November of 1960 uh, in which military officers attempt to overthrow the uh, government, the successor government, government to uh, 
Castillo Armas, who had been assassinated in 1957. And their movement uh, is a typical cuartelazo, a movement of, of different army barracks around the country, whereby you need X number of barracks to declare in your favor in order to push the government over. And that didn't happen. They got the support of uh, different uh, groups in the eastern part of the country, but the uh, center of the country and the uh, highlands essentially stayed loyal to the government. Uh, the revolt was uh, a movement that lasted uh, about a week, if that long, and established the uh, the, the, the firm control of the Idrigos government, which uh, then stayed in power. Factions of these army officers, uh, members of the, uh, the group that was uh, uh, in opposition, uh, now understood their careers as army people uh, to be over. A number of them crossed the border into Honduras. Some of them found their way to El Salvador. They contacted different op op opposition groups, uh, some of them uh, communists, some of them not. They came back into the country as small groups of military-led uh, uh, groups of, of, of fighting uh, ability, but very small. They established themselves one group in the eastern part of the country. Other groups... Uh, in the 1960-1963, eventually found themselves uh, a mountain reduct in the uh, Sierra Las Minas, in the eastern part of the country, and began the first guerrilla offensive, which combined the energy generated by the Cuban Revolution and uh, Che Guevara, who uh, even directed and trained some of the students who went to Cuba for training and came back to Guatemala uh, to participate in what was the Guatemalan version of Che Guevara's military uh, focal groups, um, concentrated groups, isolated uh, in rural areas, mountainous areas, or, or jungle areas. Uh, these groups had a, a civilian propaganda arm and a military arm. And the military arm in the uh, Sierras Minas was headed up by uh, one of the participants uh, in the November uh, attempted coup by the military. And so you had this, you had this strange, contradictory situation where you have a military officer with a military background and military training and part of the Guatemalan military who has suddenly become the leader of a guerrilla group that is ideologically informed by, again, the energy propaganda of the Cuban, uh, of the Cuban Revolution of 1959-1960. It's a very interesting period. Um, these groups never really get to be a threat uh, to the Guatemalan state. They are ultimately snuffed out in a counterinsurgency move inspired by 
French counterinsurgency and tactics used in Algeria at the same time in the Eastern Highlands. And by 1968-69, these groups have essentially been extinguished in the eastern part of the country. One of them, led by Jan Sosa, produces the Guatemalan version of Mao Zedong's long march across China and goes from the eastern part of the country up into the jungle highlands near the Mexican border in the Paten, where he's betrayed by a Mexican official and killed. Another group goes to Mexico City and uses Mexico City um, as a base uh, uh, of regenerating uh, its its uh, political uh, power. Some of these people actually go to Vietnam at this point and uh, uh, participate in the Tet Offensive on the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese side in, 1860, in 1968. Learn about tactics of... Uh, Land, guerrilla land warfare, Asian uh, people's warfare, read the texts of uh, the famous uh, Vietnamese general who was credited with defeating the North American army, uh, General Le Vo Giap. Uh, these ideas are brought back to the political base in Mexico. Uh, a new guerrilla group is formed there uh, using these tactics. Uh, those who don't agree with these tactics split off and, and continue to uh, base themselves on guerrilla warfare in the Americas and the Cuban model. Both of these models come back into Guatemala in the early 1970s. Uh, in the highlands, then, you have the, the EGP, the Ejército Guerrero de los Pobres, who use the Vietnamese model along the volcanic axis from the northwest of the country and continuing uh, southeast uh, using using the uh, rough terrain around the volcanic axis and what's called the Boca Costa, between the volcanoes and the coast. You have ORPA, the Organización Revolucionaria del Pueblo, and you have the survivors of the original guerrilla group who move back into the Paten and continue uh, their operations. By the 1970s, you also have the Communist Party itself, generating a military arm using its unionizing activities uh, in Guatemala City, uh, using the campus of the National University, San Carlos, as a recruiting ground, as it had been throughout the 60s and 70s anyway, and create a military arm that supports strike activity uh, in areas of the South Coast uh, and Guatemala City. So you have four different uh, guerrilla groups participating in an opposition expression to what they consider to be the oligarchic state run by the Guatemalan military. And the Guatemalan military and the Guatemalan oligarchy are cooperating fully with producing uh, this image. Uh, you have after uh, the uh, end of the civilian government of Montenegro in uh, 1970, you have a succession of generals 
who are elected for four-year periods. Arano Osorio, the general responsible for annihilating the first guerrilla movement in the eastern part of the country in 1967, 68. I don't know why I'm obsessed with the 19th century here all of a sudden. After Arana in 1972, you have the, the controversial election of uh, General Shiel Lagarud, who in the process marginalized another general who was running for the Christian Democrats, Efraim Rios Montt, who is then shipped off to Europe as an attaché to get him out of the way of uh, any, any controversy following on the 74 revolution. And then you have the election of the third general in 1978, Romeo Lucas Garcia, who wasn't considered to be the brightest bulb uh, shining in uh, Guatemalan uh, generalship or politics, but that's not to say that he was uh, stupid either, but he essentially ran the third military dictatorship, which by that time ran essentially on autopilot, a corrupt system was increasingly uh, oppressive to opposition groups associated or not with uh, the guerrillas. But since you have all of these guerrilla groups running around the country, the tendency to associate anyone who said anything against the government or against the system as a communist uh, gave full-blown force to Guatemalan McCarthyism. Uh, which was, of course, a much meaner, a much bloodier, a much more violent, a much more uh, uh, decisive kind of anti-communism, which then allowed for these opposition groups to gain sympathy and support among people who were not necessarily... uh, signed on to their particular vision of uh, the socialist or communist future of Guatemala, but you have then the the polarization of the country. Uh, The polarization produced weakness. Uh, The army was engaged constantly in uh, actions, uh, military actions. Uh, It was never really a war. Uh, The idea that we were involved here in a 30-year or a 34-year period of armed struggle and warfare is, again, part of the branding that went on on the political left to create the idea that there was warfare without around the country. Uh, this was never true. Nobody, if you ask anybody to name one battle that was fought between the guerrillas and the uh, military over this 30-long-year struggle... Nobody can name one. There is no battle that can be named. Uh, I can name one because I've studied it, but nobody else can. And there are only two or three battles that could be... There were essentially... It was a 30-year-long encounter of firefights. And any time the uh, guerrilla groups moved into an urban area, a town or... uh, anything larger or smaller than a town in the highlands. The army was there within 24 hours and moved them right out. So they were never able to establish themselves as an official opposition fighting force. 
which is what they looked for in terms of recognition in the international community. But they did produce a brand and a propaganda and a sympathy uh, for the Guatemalan Indians who were essentially caught between these two forces. Uh, the best book you can read on this uh, is by um, an author whose name I can't recall at this very instant, but uh, the, the, the title of the book is Entre Dos Fuegos, which is uh, an allusion to the idea or allusion to the idea that the Indians in the Guatemalan highlands are, are caught between having to make a decision about who they're going to support. Are they going to support the military? Are they going to support the guerrillas? Who do they really support, the military or the guerrillas? And, and, and so this is, you know, something the European community hasn't figured out to this day. Uh, why Rios Montt and his political party to this day, although he uh, has since passed away, uh, got strong support from those parts of the Guatemalan highlands where the counterinsurgency movement that he directed after the military coup of 1982, where those counterinsurgency strikes were most effective. And the Indian communities, especially the Ishim Triangle and uh, areas of uh, northern Quiche province most affected, uh, Chimaltenango most affected, uh, uh, parts of uh, southern and uh, Western Petén most affected, why the general and his party gets support from those populations. And, you know, the, the, the European communities haven't figured out to this day why. And it's because the Indian community supported the army more than they supported the guerrillas. Uh, why that is so is historically based uh, and open to interpretation. But the effort of these four groups to come together in 1981-82 as the URNG, the U-R-N-G, which is the coalition of those four fighting groups, uh, opposition groups that I mentioned previously, is essentially uh, a master stroke of Fidel Castro, who insists that a united front is the only way that he would continue to support the uh, Guatemalan insurgency using the model of the Sandinistas and the uh, guerrillas in El Salvador. The Sandinistas having come to power in Nicaragua in 1979 and the guerrilla groups in El Salvador having established their presence very strongly by the mid-1980s. Uh, at that point, uh, the counterinsurgency strikes led by uh, a Rios Montt government essentially defeat militarily the guerrilla groups that exist in the country. They are swept northward, uh, many destroyed and disbanded in the process, uh, forced to establish safe zones across the border in Mexico where they can regroup or into the jungles of the Paten, go many of them uh, in the extreme northern part of Quiche province and uh, where that province meets the Paten, which is called Mayaban. Uh, turning the guerrilla groups now into a very dispersed and unorganized 
incapable military opposition, but still a very strong political presence because of the brand they've established in the international community, because of the, the popularity of the Sandinista revolution in the international community, uh, because of the success of the guerrilla groups in El Salvador, the Guatemalan guerrilla groups are able then to survive on the coattails of these movements, although they never again are able to mount any kind of military opposition to the Guatemalan state. They become, uh, to some extent, terrorist groups. They engage in kidnapping people. They extort money. They rob banks. They do things to create the money they need to keep going. Uh, they are underground operations uh, in Guatemala City, uh, uh, into the uh, restoration of democracy that comes with the 1985 Constitution and the election of Benicio Cerezo in 1985. He takes power in January of 1986 and initiates with... Uh, the president of Costa Rica, a peace process that will include different countries, the Contador group, and ultimately uh, be put under the umbrella of the United Nations, which begins a process of dialogue and accompanying and the creation of contact groups that eventually produce the Guatemalan Peace Accord of... <clears throat> Was it 1990, 1995, right? Uh, 1996. And that peace accord is essentially something that the opposition, the long, the long and harried uh, uh, opposition, socialist, communist, or however you want to consider it, essentially forced to except because by that time the guerrillas in, in El Salvador have signed a peace accord with the Salvadoran state. The Sandinista revolution has, has uh, collapsed and become a uh, uh, lost prestige in the world and in the region. Uh, you have uh, the Chamorro government, uh, Violeta Chamorro, the widow of the assassinated uh, uh, news, newsman during the Somoza times becoming president in 1991 there, the Cristiani government coming to power in, in El Salvador in the mid-90s, leaves, leaves Guatemala's guerrilla groups with support only based in the international community. And it's that international community which, with its, its illusions about uh, the history of the region and... Uh, uh, the interest of the people here in becoming socialist or communist, uh, what keeps these groups uh, alive, but you only need study the electoral results of the guerrilla groups that have formed political parties since 1997. And, you know, they have very little support in the presidential elections. They have very little support in terms of putting people in Congress. Uh, they've, they've been successful in putting two or three or four ex-guerrillas, you know, the official guerrillas who are, who are propped up by international finance, uh, uh, political financing to this day. 
Muy bien, y ahora vamos a hacer algo distinto. Unas reflexiones, preguntas hipotéticas sobre la historia de Guatemala. Así que, ¿qué opina usted sobre la independencia de Guatemala? ¿Habría sido mejor que Guatemala permaneciera como la colonia de la corona española? Yo he reflexionado bastante sobre, sobre esa pregunta, sí. Eh, y pues la respuesta corta es sí. Eh, la revolución o las revoluciones de la independencia son parte del de, de, de ideario de una época romántica. Eh, Simón, Bo, Simón Bolívar es un liberal conservador, autoritario, de finales del siglo XIX, que nació temprano, nace en el siglo, crece bajo ideas de la ilustración, pero es un romántico. La independencia de estos países, temprano en el siglo XIX, es una independencia totalmente romántica. Es un momento muy inoportuno desde el punto de vista económico para Guatemala en particular. Eh, no tiene Guatemala la, la posibilidad de insertarse en, en eh, los nexos de la economía internacional. El producto principal de Guatemala en, en, en 1820-21 es la cochenilla, llamada a veces la grana, que es un, un tinte que se utiliza en el proceso de, de eh, colorear eh, ropa, eh, es decir, no es un producto eh, muy firme, muy productivo eh, y, y producto base eh, para una economía que seguía siendo una economía de extracción y de exportación. No existe una idea de nación en 1821, los, los llamados próceres son criollos de la colonia que todavía creen en la organización jerárquica de sus sociedades. Eh, no es el momento oportuno para una independencia. Eh, si estos países hubieran seguido siendo eh, colonias de España hasta finales del siglo y conseguido su independencia eh, luego pues habrían nacido a la independencia en el momento de la expansión eh, de la segunda revolución industrial eh, y habrían desarrollado, si, si presumimos que el desarrollo productivo del país eh, eh, habría seguido en el mismo camino y el café había llegado a ser un producto importante y si Guatemala hubiera llegado a su independencia con un producto de exportación que, el, que le diera estabilidad financiera, probablemente habría tenido otro tipo de, de futuro. Pero eso es pura especulación, ¿no? ¿Cuáles son los conceptos erróneos más comunes que tienen los guatemaltecos acerca de la United Fruit Company? Bueno, mencioné algunos eh, antes en eh, la entrevista en inglés eh, que que la United Fruit Company de alguna manera es el, el, eh, la cabeza de playa del imperialismo yanqui. ¿no? Eh, voy a hablar solo de un aspecto para, para no extender tanto eh, eh, la entrevista. 
Mucha gente no sabe que en el mismo momento que aquí operaba eh, el gobierno de, de Guatemala eh, eh, un plan de reforma agraria que iba a afectar, iba a afectar la, la frutera, la United Fruit Company, se dice pues en español la frutera, con, con F mayúscula, ¿no? la frutera eh, que tenía... Eh, como en el cultivo del banano, tierra que dejaba en descanso, tierra valía durante algún tiempo y tierra en producción que era necesaria en, en, en lo que era la, la técnica de cultivo del banano. Pero la legislación pues afectaba la tierra no productiva y definía la tierra valía que estaba en descanso como tierra no utilizada y entonces sujeta a la nacionalización. La frutera había despertado en el, en el, eh, en el sistema judicial norteamericano eh, señales de violación de las leyes antimonopólicas, lo que llamamos en inglés the antitrust laws. Y estas leyes antimonopólicas servían para empezar una acción judicial federal, es decir, el gobierno de los Estados Unidos está en proceso de demandar la frutera por violación de estas leyes y la intención del gobierno de los Estados Unidos es fragmentar la institución, la frutera, como una corporación y volverla más más pequeña, más, más dentro de lo que son los límites establecidos por esta legislación. Entonces, lo que mucha gente aquí no entiende es que la misma institución, la frontera, la frontera que ellos acusan de ser la cabeza de playa del imperialismo yanqui, esa misma institución está siendo demandada y atacada por ese mismo gobierno para fragmentarla y volverla más pequeña. Entonces, la gente no entiende cómo opera el, el, el Estado de Derecho en los Estados Unidos y, y cree que la frutera es un agente de, del imperialismo de, del Estado Yankee. Yeah. Consecuencia de la propaganda de la era, ¿no? Y una última pregunta. ¿Qué predice usted sobre el futuro de Guatemala? Bueno. Desafortunadamente... Mi predicción es que habrá más de lo mismo. Yo no veo eh, eh, signos de cambio eh, eh, en este gobierno que ha empezado eh, siendo un gobierno de orden público, eh, ha declarado estados de prevención en eh, diferentes departamentos que afectan multiplicidad de municipios en esos departamentos como un esfuerzo pues por responder a lo que es la preocupación número uno de los guatemaltecos, de la seguridad. Eh, yo no sé si la seguridad es una cuestión de eficientar respuestas eh, policíacas eh, dirigidas por las Fuerzas Armadas, porque a la larga eso va a despertar la oposición de los grupos de derechos humanos y, y 
y esa misma comunidad internacional que critica eh, la tradición autoritaria del país. Eh, pero veremos. Eso se ha ensayado antes. Eh, es un paliativo. Eh, empieza bien, frecuentemente termina mal. Vamos a ver qué pasa en ese caso. La seguridad de Guatemala en el mediano y largo plazo pues, está en un sistema económico más abierto, eh, un estado menos patrimonial, es decir, que el estado de Guatemala es como la mayoría de los estados iberoamericanos diseñado históricamente dentro del modelo patrimonial que le asigna al Estado mucha decisión en cuanto a la economía, cómo funciona, quién gana, quién pierde, quiénes tienen los privilegios, es desde la corona española hasta los estados iberoamericanos hoy, la autoridad estatal que toma las decisiones en cuanto a ¿Quién tendrá la oportunidad de enriquecerse? ¿Cómo tendrá esa oportunidad? Eh, y la gente está acostumbrada a ver en el Estado, pues, el diseñador de la economía. Eh, hasta que esa realidad cambie, hasta que tengamos una institucionalidad moderna, eh, yo veo eh, en Guatemala un Estado que esencialmente mantiene instituciones modernas. Cuando hablábamos de Rafael Carrera, eh, el punto fue, la pregunta que me hicieron, ¿qué hizo Rafael Carrera para producir la estabilidad? Pues, retornó el país al contexto colonial. El contexto colonial es el contexto patrimonial. Hasta que haya otra, otra idea, otra filosofía, otros valores eh, en cuanto a la actividad cívica, la participación cívica, la participación empresarial, hasta que los empresarios eh, eh, vean eh, la importancia en generar trabajo en lugar de generar riqueza, eh, las cosas no van a cambiar por ese lado tampoco. Eh, entonces hay muchas razones que informan eh, un pesimismo sobre el futuro inmediato, eh, de Guatemala, yo soy un historiador, debo confesar que, que la, la preferencia o el prejuicio, que son dos lados de una misma ficha, de los historiadores es el pesimismo. Eh, eh, y entonces eh, van a encontrar mucha gente que dirá cosas, eh, el futuro de Guatemala pues entre dos océanos estratégicamente situado pero si no tenemos las instituciones eh, necesarias, modernas, para aprovechar esas circunstancias, y si no tenemos los valores cívicos eh, eh, necesarios para enderezar la política, pues eh, yo sigo con mi predicción de más de lo mismo. Muy bien, muchas gracias por compartir sus ideas con nosotros, profesor Cox. If you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. And, and together, together we are the History Twins. Twins.